find a place where you can grab a seat. You guys ready to hear God's word this morning? All right. We're going to be continuing our study on the book of James, and we're preaching our way through James's letter. How many of you have ever had a friend that came to talk to you, and they were so nice and so non-confrontational that they were trying to talk to you about something they were frustrated with you about or something you did that hurt them, and they got done talking, and you were like, oh, wait a second, that felt like a compliment, but are you saying you don't like when I do that? Does anybody have any friends like that? James is 100% opposite of that. He is nothing like that. James is confrontational. He is in your face. He is in your business. And he is not holding any punches. So if you feel beat up this morning, it's not me. It's James, I promise. <laughs> Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And that's really what James is doing, is he is wounding us because he loves us and he cares for us and he wants the best for us. I grew up playing basketball and I played basketball a lot when I was growing up. I haven't really played at all in like 20 years, but I used to play a lot. And when I first started playing, I learned about trash talk. I didn't really, I didn't really understand that it was trash talk the first time I heard it. I thought it was just people being mean to each other, but I ended up realizing that that was just part of the game of basketball. And I can remember when I was in fifth grade, I had just started playing. I had never been on an organized team. I had never been coached or been to a, a basketball camp or anything like that. I asked my dad to put up a basketball hoop, and so he put a basketball hoop up for me, and I started shooting. But I, I didn't even know the rules of basketball. And I went, and there was a group of guys that were playing. They were all older than me, and they needed a 10th a, a player, so I jumped in, and I played with them. But I had never played organized basketball before. I didn't even know the rules. And this, I went up for this shot, and this kid, he was a lot older than me and bigger than me, he blocked it and blocked it like right into my face. And he said, is that all you've got? And I can remember thinking, yep, that's, that's, that's all I've got. I'm in for an afternoon of getting my butt whooped. And that phrase, as, as funny as it sounds, just that little question, is that all you've got? That actually became a huge motivation in me learning and practicing and, and spending time practicing basketball. And I can remember I would practice, and I would remember that question, is that all you've got? And I didn't want that to be true. I didn't want that to be all I had. I wanted to have more skills and be able to beat this kid. So I worked hard at it. Eventually, I got better, and I got older, and I grew up. And I can remember the first time my team went to sectionals. And sectionals is like... At the end of the regular season, you have the playoffs, and when you're in high school, they call them sectionals. So we went to our first sectionals game, and we won that pretty easily. We got to our second sectionals game, and we were playing this team. I mean, it was, the intensity was like a whole nother level, like totally different than the regular season. And we had a, a taller team. We had a lot of tall guys on our team, so we knew if we could get this team in the half court, we could beat them up, we could get the ball down low, and we could, could give them the business. But they wanted to full court press us the entire game because they knew if we could get it, if we could get in a half court game, we could get the ball down low, we'd beat them up. So they're full court pressing us the entire game. And we hadn't really played anybody who had full court pressed us like that. So we're in the second quarter, we're down by like 10 or 15, and they're beating us up with this press. Like we cannot break their press. We are not doing well. My coach calls timeout. He calls timeout, and they set the chairs up in a little circle, and we all sit down around the coach. He's just got his head down, 
And then my teammates started to argue with each other. My friend would be like, if you got me the ball over here, we would be fine. But you're dribbling right into a trap. Like, what's the matter with you? And someone said, if you would just hit me in the middle, they would collapse the defense, and I could kick it outside, and we'd be fine. And we just started arguing back and forth. And eventually we realized some time had gone by, and my coach hadn't even spoken yet. He calls another timeout, and he sits there. Now we're, like, quiet. Like, okay, we didn't let him talk during the first timeout. Like, now we're into the second timeout. Like, this is not going to be good. And he just sat there quietly for a little bit. And then he stuck his finger in each one of our faces, and he said, your talk is cheap. Your talk is cheap. Your talk is cheap. Your talk is cheap. If you did half of what you say, we would be up by 25, and we would send these guys running out of the gym. You need to stop talking and start playing. And that's really what the book of James is. It's James looking at us and he's saying, your talk is cheap. Your talk does not match up to your walk. If you did half of what you say, we would win this county for God in mere months. Your talk is cheap. I want to actually read to you the whole second chapter of James this morning. I'd intended to read to you the whole chapter of James 1 last week, but because of time I wasn't able to. So you can follow along with me as I read chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if anyone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily bread. If one of you say to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did 
when he offered his son Isaac on the altar, you see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled and says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So far, in the book of James, James has showed us three marks of the mature believer, and this was in chapter 1. The first was they have joy in trials. The second, they triumph in temptation. And the third, they practice the truth. Remember, he said to not, they are not only hearers, but they're doers of the word. And then in James chapter 2, James shows us two, mar- two more marks of the mature believer, and I want to look at those today. The first is they don't show favoritism, and the second is their actions speak louder than words. So first I want to look at they don't show favoritism. We find this in James 2, verse 1. It says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our, in our lo- glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. First of all, it's important to remember that this letter is written to believers. So this is James addressing the sin of the saints. And what he wrote here, when in, in original Greek language, what he really wrote is stop having favoritism. Stop having favoritism. So James isn't even really asking, do you show favoritism? Do you think you show favoritism? He's saying, nope, you have favoritism, and you need to stop showing favoritism. There's outwardly sins of behavior that we commit, but then there's inward sins of the heart, and that's really what James is talking about here. He's talking about an inward sin of the heart. James is saying that one of the greatest tests of our genu- if the genuineness of our faith is how we treat people. One of the greatest tests of the genuineness of our faith is how we treat people. We should be so impacted by the love of God that it literally changes the way that we treat people. In the Gospel of John, it's said this way, By this, everyone will know that you are disciples if you love one another. I want us to have good theology. I want us to spend time studying the Word of God. I want us to dissect it. But sometimes I see people arguing about theological ideas. I see this oftentimes on social media amongst Christians. People arguing, a lot of times these days, people are arguing about the end times and what they believe that's going to look like and what this sign means and what that sign means. And I watch these arguments and I watch the way that people treat each other and I, I think to myself, man, you guys are making Christians look so ugly right now. Like, it's so sad. This gospel somehow made it to your head enough that you can argue a theological point and you can argue your eschatological views, but it didn't get to your heart enough that it changes the way that you talk to people. I had a professor at Elam that when he would see this sort of thing happen, he would say, big head, shriveled heart. Big head, shriveled heart. If, the, if these ideas that we see in the scripture don't affect our lives when the rubber meets the road, then they're worthless. If this gospel doesn't affect your life when you get stuck in traffic or when someone cuts you off, 
in traffic, or when someone messes up your food order, or when a kid from another school body checks your daughter on the soccer field and you come off the seat like you're about to murder the ref. I don't know who did that, but (laughs) probably my wife, probably April is my guess. If these things don't affect our lives in the way that we behave, James is saying they're worthless. You're fooling yourself. Christians struggle with showing favoritism. It was a problem in James's day, and it's a problem in our day today, too. We show favoritism to people based on their education, based on how much money they make, based on the color of their skin, based on whether or not they have tattoos, based on how they look, based on how long or short, apparently, their hair is. Stop judging me. We show favoritism to people all over the place. You know, even Jesus, they showed favoritism against him, and they picked on him. They looked down on him. They said Jesus was from a small town called Nazareth, and it was a little, kind of like a hillbilly podunk town. And people used to say to Jesus, could anything good even come out of Nazareth, implying that nothing good could come from there, so he couldn't be good. James is saying we shouldn't be partial to people and show favoritism to people because they're wealthy or have power or influence. And he's also saying we shouldn't look down on people because they don't have as much or they're maybe poor. 1 Samuel 16.7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. we got to stop looking at the outward appearance. I wonder what would happen in our lives, in the community that we live, if we stopped looking at people's outward appearance and started looking at people's hearts. If we started seeing people the way that Jesus sees them, if we started caring about people the way that Jesus cared about people. There's hundreds of stories in the Bible where we can see this with Jesus, and I just picked a few to share with you this morning. First is in Mark chapter 12, the story of the poor widow. And Jesus and the disciples, they were at the temple, and people would come to the temple, and they would bring an offering, similar to how we um, sometimes bring an offering to church, and we, we give that in the offering bag. So these people would come, but in those days, the offering container was up front, and it was made out of like metal. And at the end of it, it would kind of flute out, kind of like a a trumpet or something like that, kind of like a funnel. And people would come in, and during the time of worship, they would come up and they would bring their offering to the front of the church. And sometimes the wealthy people would bring a really ornate bag, and it would look really beautiful, and people would look at it, and they would say, wow, look at that offering, and they would bring it up, and they would dump it, and you could hear the coins clinking into this container as the coins fell in there. And People would say, wow, look at all the money that person's given to God. Like They must really love God, and I bet he's really happy with that offering that they give. And another person would come up with a big, beautiful bag, and they would dance around and show off their pretty bag, and then they would dump their offering in, and people would listen to the coins, like clink, 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 and wow, that was a lot of money. That's amazing. Look at what that person gave. And then this woman came up, and she looked small and poor and looked like she didn't have anything. And she opened her little bag, and she pulled out two mites. And two mites in those days were lower than the lowest denomination of coin that they had. So it would be like less than a penny. And she took the two mites, and she dropped them in, and people could hear the individual mites hit the bag. 
And they kind of started to laugh under their breath. And they said, look what she gave. She gave hardly anything. Like, I bet God's not happy with that. She must not really love God. And Jesus came in and he said, like, stop. Stop it, you guys. Like, you, she gave more than anybody. And they're like, what? Like, she, no, she didn't. Like, didn't you see the bags of money that these guys were bringing? And she brought those little two mites. And Jesus said, no, she gave out of her lack. She gave out of her need. She gave next week's groceries in the offering. They gave what was left over. They gave the excess. They gave what they had left over after they bought their new truck and bought the nicest house and they got a new boat and they got all the stuff they could ever possibly want. Look how fat their belly is. They ate most of their food. And they gave what was left over after they had everything they need and it didn't cost them anything. There was no pain in that sacrifice whatsoever. Jesus said, stop looking at the outward and start looking at the heart. You'll remember in John chapter 4, there was this woman at the well, and Jesus was traveling from town to town with his disciples. And his disciples were hungry, so they went into town to get some food, and Jesus was thirsty, so he went to this well. And there was this woman there, and Jesus spent time with her, and Jesus, he talked to her about stuff that no one else could have possibly known. He knew everything about her. And the way that he talked, talked to her caused her to feel loved in a way that she hadn't felt loved before. And the disciples show up, and they're like, Jesus, can we talk to you over here for a second? And they're like, we don't really think you should be talking to her. Like, it doesn't look good. And Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? And like, well, first of all, she's a woman, and like, she's beneath you, so you probably shouldn't be talking to her. Second of all, she's a Samaritan, and you're a Jew, and so like, you're way above her in class. So like you wouldn't really want to be talking to someone from the bad side of town. And then third of all, like maybe you don't know about this stuff because you're like the son of God and worried about the world, but she's kind of been around a lot. She's got a really bad reputation. So you probably wouldn't want to be seen with her. And Jesus drops his head and they say, it's okay, Jesus. Like, don't feel bad. We all make mistakes. And he said, I'm not dropping my head because of her. I'm dropping my head because of you. Like, you guys have been around me all this time, and you're still missing it. You look at the outward, but I look at the heart. I don't show favoritism to people. I give the love of the Father away to everyone, freely to anyone who wants it. And the third story that I want to tell you was, you'll remember maybe about a story about a man named Zacchaeus. The Bible says that he was a wee little man, not exactly how he would probably want to be remembered, but that's how Zacchaeus was remembered. But Zacchaeus... He was a tax collector, and in those days, the people that were collecting taxes, they would go and they would sit down with the governmental officials, and there was an auction where they could bid on the taxes for the province. And let's say the province said, we want to collect $10,000 for that province, then these guys would, would bid in it like an auction, and they would say, okay, you know, they want $10,000, I, I, I think I can raise $15,000, and I can... I can I can profit five grand into my pocket based on the people that are in that province. And so tax collectors were literally hated by everyone except tax collectors. Like their only friends are tax collectors because the working class is working hard and these tax collectors are getting rich off their backs. Everyone hated tax collectors. They were evil and they looked out for themselves only. And Zacchaeus, when he heard that Jesus was coming to town, the Bible says he climbed up in a tree. 
And I don't know for sure, but my guess is that Zacchaeus had started to hear about what Jesus was doing in the area, about how Jesus heals people and he forgives sins and he accepts people. And he even took people that were possessed by demons and delivered them from, that, from the torment that they were under. And I bet Zacchaeus started to wonder, could Jesus forgive someone like me? What would Jesus do with someone like me? Could Jesus possibly love someone like me? Someone who looked out for themselves, someone who took advantage of people. Could this Jesus possibly forgive me? So he climbed up in a tree when he heard that Jesus was coming to town. Jesus is coming to town and there's people all around. And Jesus looks up in the tree and he sees Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, can you come out of that tree? Because I want to go to your house for dinner. And the disciples again are like, Jesus, like we're trying to get your brand out there. We're trying to let people know about your message. You don't want to be seen with a tax collector. Like, that's the, like being seen with someone who had a bad reputation, okay, we'll let that one slide, but not a tax collector. Like everyone hates Zacchaeus. Everyone knows Zacchaeus. Everyone hates him. You don't want to be seen with him if you want this message to go to the end of the earth like you said you do. And Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. We don't know what happened exactly in that time that Zacchaeus was with Jesus. But what we do know is that based on what happened when Jesus was in Zacchaeus' house, is Zacchaeus came out of that house changed. He came out of that house and he gave away the money that he had stolen from everyone. And you know a tax collector got saved if they're giving away money. Like, tax collectors are taking money for themselves. All If they're giving money away, you know they are a changed person. But that's what happens when you meet Jesus. Jesus doesn't look down on the woman with a bad reputation. He doesn't look down on the tax collector. He freely loves everyone. I can't help but wonder what would happen in our world, in the community where we live, if we did that. If we started loving people the way that Jesus did. If we stopped looking down on people that were different from us, people that we didn't understand, and just started loving people the way that Jesus did. The second thing that James talked about is he said that actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. The first thing that he talks about is, is showing favoritism. He tells us not to show favoritism. Then he says that actions speak louder than words. I'm going to find out real quick who grew up in the church and who didn't. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Hey, look at you guys. A bunch of homeschoolers. That's cute. You guys, you guys don't understand social stuff, but you know how to clap your hands. I like it. Um, so the end of that song, it's a little song that you used to sing in like church when you were a little kid or at vacation Bible school. It says, if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. This is what James is talking about when he says that our actions have to speak louder than our words. There's really three questions that James asks in this last section in James 2. The first one is, is your faith an empty claim? And this is someone who has, can talk the Christian game, but the walk of their life does not match up with the talk. This is in verse 14 through 18. I want you to take note of every time he says the word say or says and think, does my talk match my walk? says, what does it profit, my brethren, 
if someone says he has faith but does not have works? The answer to that question is nothing. Can that faith save him? No. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily bread, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? The answer is nothing. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. In verse 14, James implies that just because we say the right words does not actually mean that we're saved and have a relationship with Jesus. James says our words don't save, but then he also says they don't serve. He gives us this illustration in verse 15 and 16 of someone who doesn't have enough clothes to keep warm and someone who doesn't have enough food to eat. And we, we leave that person and we say, be blessed, but we don't do anything to meet the need. He's talking here about someone who sees a need but doesn't actually have a heart to serve. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. That's each other. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is where James is saying that if we actually love and if we actually have a genuine, real faith, there has to be works that follow that. You should be able to see our faith in the way that we live. And the second question that James asks is, is my faith in a creed? This is in James 2, 17 through 19. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, yet yeah, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So here James is drawing the distinction between someone who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says that deeds will most definitely follow someone who has faith in Jesus. And he draws a distinction between someone who has faith in a creed. And he says here that um, there's this, he kind of implies that there's a person who says there is one God. And that's actually in almost every creed that there is one God. That's good doctrine, that's good theology, that's what the Bible teaches, that there is one God. But then he says, even the demons believe there's one God but they just shake in his presence. They don't serve him. They don't put their faith in him. And what James is saying here is that you can know all the right words. You can know the words of the creed or of the Bible. You can even memorize scripture. You can be around church and you can say the right things. But if there is no deeds, if where the rubber meets the road, your life isn't changed and we can't see your faith in the way that you act, then it's worthless. It doesn't mean anything. In a couple of months, I hate to break it to you, but it's going to be cold and snowy. It's coming. Whether you like it or not, it's going to happen. And usually we get into February, and people start like jonesing to go south. Like they want to go south so bad. Like they're looking at 
spring break and they're like, I don't want to wait till spring break. I want to go to Florida or the Bahamas or something like that. And some people actually do that. Some of us just sit and wish we could. So let's say that you get to that place and you want to go to the Bahamas. And you, buy, you, set up a, uh, you set up a stay at a resort and you buy your ticket to fly and you get in your car and you drive to Rochester to go to the airport. You get your ticket at the ticket counter and then you go and you, they scan your ticket and then you walk down the little thing. You could sit there and you could have all the faith that this plane can take you to the Bahamas. But it's not going to take you to the Bahamas unless you put your full faith, your full hope in it, and you put your trust in it, and you crawl inside that plane. Once you, once you get into that plane, it can take you to the Bahamas. But you could say all the right things. You could pack your bag. You could go to the airport. You could do all of it. But if you don't put your full faith and your full trust in that plane and climb inside, you're not going to the Bahamas. You're just standing at the airport like a weirdo. The same is true of our relationship with God. You could be around church, you can say the right things, but if you don't put your full faith in Jesus and your full trust in him, and we can see the fruit of that by the actions of your life, then you're not actually saved, and you're not actually going to go to heaven. And that's what James is saying here. The last thing that James says, in the last question that James asks in this, in this section is does your faith produce a committed, obedient life? Does your faith produce a, a committed, obedient life? So in the first two questions, he exposes the fact that some of us have a dead faith and don't actually have faith in Jesus. But then in this third question, he does the opposite. He actually shows us examples of people from the Old Testament who did put their faith in the Lord. This is in verse 20 through 26. It says, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled by saying, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So this is really amazing what James does here, is he contrasts Abraham, who's like the patriarch of our faith, and Rahab, who was a prostitute. It would be hard to pick people that were more different than Rahab and Abraham. Abraham was a Jew. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was a man. Rahab was a woman. Abraham was a friend of God. And Rahab belonged to the enemies of God. But what they had in common was their faith and belief and trust in God that resulted in their salvation and a changed life that produced action. James uses these two examples, I believe, to show us that God doesn't care where you came from. He doesn't care if you came from a religious family or from a family of outlaws. He took uh, Abraham, who was from a religious family, and Rahab, who was from a family that was an enemy of God. 
He doesn't care if you're from a long line of pastors, and he doesn't care if you're from a long line of drug addicts. God will save anyone who puts their faith completely and wholly in him. So here we talk about Abraham, and Abraham is in this situation that honestly I cannot even imagine being in this situation where God asks him to sacrifice his son. You know, if that was me, I think I would have slept in that day. I would have called in sick, but Abraham doesn't. He gets up early, and he's ready to obey God in what seems like the hardest and almost most impossible thing that God could ever ask for. But Abraham trusted God. He had such faith in God that in something that made so little sense, like how could God possibly ask for this? He obeyed God, and him and Isaac headed up the mountain. And then, of course, God provided so that he didn't have to sacrifice his son. But that faith is absolutely amazing. And then we have Rahab, who he talks about. And Rahab shows up in Joshua chapter 2. And if you're not familiar with the situation, the children of Israel are about to go in and take the promised land, which was a land that God had set apart for them. But it wasn't going to be given to them easily. They were going to have to take it by war. So they sent in spies to to check out the land and see, like, how bad is this going to be? How big of a fight do we have on our hands? And these spies come to Rahab's house, and Rahab was a prostitute. So men were usually coming to her house for a very different reason than these men came to her house. So when these men came to her house, she saw that there was something different about them. And they said, we're here on behalf of God. Would you hide us? And she believed, and she had faith. And I bet, I don't know for sure, but I bet Rahab wondered, man, is there a God out there that could do anything different with my life than the mess that I have made with my life? Like, this is what I've done with my life, and it's come with all this hurt and pain, and it's not really what I would have wanted for my life, but this is what the mess that I've made in my life. And I bet Rahab wondered, is there a God out there that could do something different with me? Is there a God that could take a broken person like me and do something different? So when these men showed up and they were sent there by God, she had faith and she hid these men. These soldiers were coming to kill these men. So she took these men and she put them up on the roof and she hid them there. And then the soldiers came and they said, hey, have you seen these spies? And she goes, ah, they went that way. So then the soldiers took off. So then she went down and got the men and she said, hey, I told the soldiers that you went that way. So if you guys go that way, you're going to be safe. And then she said, would you remember me when you come back here to take this land? And they said, yeah. And they gave her a red rope. They said to hang the rope out your window. And when they see the red rope hanging out the window, they'll know to protect you and your family. So Rahab put her faith in God. And the result of Rahab putting her faith in God is she actually got saved and she became part of the Israelites. She actually got brought into the family, even though she had no business being there, she got brought into the family. And then in Matthew 1.5, we see that Rahab, who was this prostitute that got brought into the family of God, actually became part of the lineage of Jesus. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about, it's like the hall of fame of Christians, like it talks about the most amazing Christians that did all these things for God, Rahab actually makes it into that list amazing because of her faith in God. I want you to know this morning that God doesn't care if you came from a religious family or if you came from a family that's a mess. If you'll put your faith in him, he'll make a place for you. 
James ends the chapter in James 2.26, and he says, <coughs> sorry, he says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. The word for dead that he uses there is actually the word for a corpse. What does a corpse do? Nothing. It's just there. It's, it's dead. It's lifeless. It, it doesn't do anything. And James is saying that our faith without works is dead like a corpse. That's how God sees it. I want to ask you this morning, I just want to end by asking you a question. When people look at your life, can they see your faith? If we were to send a, a camera crew around, like undercover boss, to, to, to video you for the week, would we be able to see your faith in the way that you interact with people? Would we be able to see your faith in the way that you relate to people? I recently heard a, um, from somebody who was a, a waitress and talked about a group of Christians that would meet for a Bible study in their restaurant once a week. These Christians would come in for this Bible study, and she told me that nobody, none of the waiters or waitresses wanted to wait on this group of people because of the way that they treated them and because how poorly they tipped. And I thought, I was just like, these people are there to study the Word of God, and then they treat people poorly and don't leave a tip? Like, how disgusting. Like, that was so embarrassing to me that that's how, they're there to study the Word of God that's supposed to teach them how to show God's love to the people around them. But when the rubber met the road, that's not where their hearts were. And I do not want that to be the story for us. And James is confronting believers this morning who are in that same place where their faith doesn't result in action. Faith has to result in action for you and for me. Can the people around you in your life see your faith in the way that you don't show favoritism to people, you just give God's love away for everybody, to everybody, and in the way that you serve the people around you? Would you bow your heads this morning? Lord, we thank you for your word, your word that um, shows up at times to encourage us when we're weary and tired, and it shows up at times to confront us when we have sin in our life. And the, the book of James here in chapter 2 confronts people who show favoritism to people and look down on other people, and it confronts people who there's no action attached to their faith and their faith is dead. And Lord, I ask that that would not be true of us. Lord, I ask that there would be action to our faith all over the place in our lives, that the way that we relate to people, the way that we treat people, would point people to you. Lord, don't let us be like this group of people that James is writing to, but let us be the people that share your love with the people around us. And let us serve those around us, God. Lord, I ask you to bless each one as they go from this place this morning. In your name I pray, amen. Go put action to your faith. The altar call is out there this week.